Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Donald Trump makes it official. Republicans win the House. Nancy Pelosi steps down as leader. Carrie Lake loses her race for Arizona governor. And later, Dan talks to the Nevada Independent's John Ralston about how he nailed his midterm calls. And they talk about Nevada's political future. But first, the Crooked Store just launched brand new holiday merch inspired by your favorite Crooked podcasts. New items include... A bake appreciator apron. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. I'm so pleased. What a great idea. Just great. Uh, for all you take appreciating bakers out there, I can't wait to see. I want to see a picture of Elijah in his take appreciator apron. That's what I want to see. Um, a magnetic poetry kit that allows you to make your own notes app apology. <laughs> okay. And more. This holiday season, every order from the Cricket Store will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to help the Georgia runoffs. So... Go to crooked.com slash store to shop now. And speaking of Georgia, early voting starts Monday, November 28th for the December 6th runoff. There's not much time. If you're a Georgia voter, head over to votesaveamerica.com to make your plan. If you're not a Georgia voter, but you still want to help, which you should, uh, you can find remote and in-person volunteering opportunities at VSA. You can also donate to our Every Last Vote Fund. It's going to go directly to grassroots mobilization, to turning out young people and folk, people of color. Um, it's going to help people with uh, early vote and mail-in vote. It's a great fund. Please donate. Uh, Raphael Warnock needs all the help he can get. Republicans are spending a lot of money on this race. So please go to votesaveamerica.com now to help get involved. Can I do two? Uh, I have two housekeeping notes. Oh, yeah. Great. Yes. One, there's... So much I enjoy about doing this podcast with you, but there's nothing I enjoy more than watching you learn about the merch your company makes in real time. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so you're, it's you're basically Donald Trump making a policy announcement. Like, it's, yeah, it's true. It's like you had up. no idea about the the bake appreciator apron until now. Like it just it came out of your mouth and you learned it. Look, after five years, uh, the the three of us have tried to split things up with this company. And who do you think who do you think oversees merch of the three of us? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it's definitely not you, based on our experience every Thursday. And I'm guessing it's not Tommy. So yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. This is a love it thing. Second thing, and more important, is I just want to take a brief moment and say happy birthday to Howley. Today is her birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Howley. Yes, I didn't know that. Yes. It would, we've been doing this podcast for a long time. The podcast has never been recorded on our birthday before. And so <laughs> it's a very special day. Here's the thing. I think of all of our partners, Howley is the only is one who will hear this. <laughs> is the biggest fan of PS. She's the most consistent PSA listener. And I know that because she will text our text chain with me and you and Emily and Holly on it. And she will mention something that happened on the pod and Emily will not know what she's talking about. Well, you should know <laughs> that she, while she is a consistent PSA listener, we are not in her top five of crooked media podcasts. Oh, that's tough. That's huge, tough. huge world though. Huge world. Oh yeah. Never cared okay. about sports once in her life in any way, shape or form. Not one bit about it. Fucking binging world corrupt. Like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> There's a lot of worldos out there. My yeah. buddy from college visited me over the weekend, and he was like, I don't have time for a lot of pods. I listen to Pod Save America. And of course, Pod Save the World. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, okay. Let's get to the news. After three losses, two impeachments, and one attempted coup turned violent insurrection, Donald Trump announced that he's officially running for president from the scene of his crime at Mar-a-Lago. The hour-long address was panned as, quote, one of the most low-energy, uninspiring speeches ever delivered by Trump. And that was from his former White House spokesperson, Sarah Matthews. The most prominent politicians in attendance were former Congressman Madison Cawthorn and Devin Nunes. <laughs> Don Jr. wasn't there. 
Ivanka wasn't there and released a statement during the speech saying that she would not be part of his campaign. Jared Kushner will also not be part of his campaign, but was in attendance. None of the networks carried the speech. CNN carried the first 25 minutes and even Fox News cut away multiple times. At one point, people in the crowd tried to leave, but were prevented from doing so by security, Red Wedding style. As for the speech itself, here are some highlights. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And we love both sides. We're going to bring people together. We're going to unify people. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Blood-soaked streets of our once great cities are cesspools of violent crimes, which are being watched all over the world. We're going to be asking everyone who sells drugs, gets caught selling drugs, to receive the death penalty for their heinous acts. China played a very active role in the 2020 election. Just saying, just saying. President Xi, who's now president for life. I call him king. He said, no, no, I'm not the king. I said, yes, you are the king. You're president for life. It's the same thing. And I'm a victim, I will tell you. I'm a victim. Think of it. I have no doubt that by 2024, it will sadly be much worse, and they will see much more clearly what happened and what is happening to our country, and the voting will be much different. Wow. Tour de force, Dan. Uh, what'd you think? Why did he sound like uh, they hit him with a few tranquilizer darts before he walked out on stage? I think drowsy walrus is a great way to describe it. So I, I like your tranquilizer <laughs> of our things. I, you know, I, his heart, I mean, that's how ridiculous he doesn't have a heart. His black, his black corrosive, corroded heart was not in it. He just, it really felt like he announced he was going to make this speech felt like he had to do the announcement because he made the announcement before the election, all of his candidates lost and he took all the blame for this and people sort of turned on him, but he knew because Trump has a sense of these things that if he were to delay his announcement, that would be a sign of weakness. So he just plowed forward. He didn't want to be there. The people in the room didn't want to be there. Fox news didn't even want to cover it. I don't even like the fact that Don jr. Didn't show up for it is notable. The fact that all these people tried to leave a Trump speech and could not leave is funny, but also sort of a metaphor for the last seven years of our life. Like, it's like you just <laughs> cannot get out the doors of Mar-a-Lago. We are stuck. We're stuck in Hotel Mar-a-Lago. I guess that's yeah, what we're it is. All, yeah, we're all at Mar-a-Lago. I don't I mean. It's just it was just all lame. It was just totally oh, surprisingly lame, I would say. Surprisingly lame. It definitely felt like they had the speech written before uh tuesday's results and then they had to go back in there and try to make a few make a few edits to make it reflect the reality of what happened (laughs) you can always tell with those speeches (laughs) (laughs) here's what i think happened every once in a while trump staff somehow convinces him to read a speech off a prompter and in this case i think they probably told him it would like you know it would enrage the fake news media if he showed some message discipline and stayed on script and didn't turn the whole thing into another rant about 2020. The problem is, for Trump, and this has always been his problem, he hates reading speeches because Stephen Miller is a, again, number one, a terrible human being. Right after that, a terrible, terrible speechwriter who has never learned to write in Trump's voice, ever. And it shows. So with Trump, you either get low energy and somewhat on message or high energy and deranged. (laughs) And like, sure enough, the New York Times reported uh, in one of the stories about the speech that like uh, aides have been wrestling with Mr. Trump's impulse for airing grievances, particular over 2020 in hopes of keeping him focused on the future. They were determined to recapture the feel of his 2016 campaign when he ran as an insurgent against the political establishment. So you could tell they were that was the intended message. But to get him to do that, you have to script him, and he's never he's never good scripted. I mean, that may have been the intended strategic imperative, but there was nothing in the speech that led to that because you can't run as the insurgent against political establishment while you spend six of the twelve hours of your speech talking about your accomplishments as president, like two years ago, right? It's just he. It was just a mess, and it, what I think it really goes to show is that Trump has nothing to say. 
Well, I was going to say, what do you think there was a message in there? What would you take out as a as a message in that I mean, rambling? If, I mean, that. <laughs> well, like it, it feels fake to even like answer that question, but I will try. <laughs> right. It's I think I think this is a joke we used a long, long time ago in the beginning of this podcast. And Trump was they were sort of like trying to divine strategy from a monkey throwing feces like it just happens. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but it is um, what I think Trump's advisors think the message is, is to use the fond memories that some small portion of people have of Trump's <laughs> accomplishments against the sour sentiments of the American people during the Biden presidency, looking at wrong track, right track numbers, inflation, et cetera, that things were, you know, sort of you stop the calendar the day before the pandemic started. This is what mm-hmm. life was like then. This is what life is like now. And I'm going to lay all of your disset, all the dissatisfaction you have with the direction of the country at the feet of the president. There's one small problem with that strategy is they just tried it eight days ago and it didn't work. <laughs> Which that sort of cast a pall over the entire speech. And you can tell, I mean, the, the line, and we played it in the clip, um, the citizens of our country have not yet realized the full extent and gravity of the pain our nation is going through, but they will. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the lamest line of the entire speech, but I guarantee you that line was not there before the midterm results. Yeah, I mean, this speech looks different. I'm not sure Trump ever... Was gonna de- he was never going to deliver this well. It was never going to be a coherent message or part of a strategy. But the environment in which it would take place would be very different if 13 of 16 Trump-endorsed candidates had won, not lost. If Joe Biden had suffered a rebuke, not a victory. All of it, the, the environment was no one wanted Trump to be doing this. Trump didn't want to be doing it. The people in the room didn't seem to want to be there. It's like they didn't realize they had to go there to get the Tuesday surf and turf at Mar-a-Lago. And it was just <laughs> – it's just the whole thing. If it, it was really interesting, like leading up to it, like this Trump, you know, you you kind of hit this in the intro, but Donald Trump is a former president of the United States. He is someone who led a violent insurrection to try to overthrow election results. He is one of the most famous people on the planet. He is under like nine criminal investigations in every imaginable jurisdiction, and his announcement for president felt like a non-event. There, there like wasn't chatter yeah. of it. There was no countdown clock. No one seemed excited about it. the MAGA media wasn't excited. Fox sort of seemed like it was they, they had to go to a wedding of, sort of a couple they didn't think made sense. It was just all it was just really interesting. I don't know that I don't know that tells us anything what's going to happen in the, over the next two years. But in the moment, it was a dud. There was also, by the way, a uh, Herschel Walker endorsement in that speech. Um, that Raphael Warnock immediately turned into an ad, (laughs) which I thought was great. That's the only thing that really came from that speech. Also, like, no hint of a policy agenda or, like, what he would do as president, except for, like, the only new policy item he has that he's been uh, talking about in rallies for the last couple months is this executing drug dealers thing. He's going full uh, Duterte in the the Philippines. Like, it's just very... uh, it's there's nothing new to say. There's not, I mean, there's this whole debate about, um, you know, should networks cover Trump, you know, with, that we've had for seven years now. But I think that the lack of coverage this time around was not necessarily like, oh, because we don't want to broadcast his lies. But if you're just just being a news organization, uh, you cover what's new. Or, or if, if some, or even if someone isn't new, but what they're saying is new, and there was nothing new here. Yeah, he he has thought about nothing other than election day twenty twenty for two years, and yeah. it's just it's boring. He this is the the worst thing that can happen to Trump is to become boring. And boring he was and boring a loser. On yeah, yeah, those are the two worst things. Well, so you know, as we mentioned, even Fox News broke away from Trump multiple times through the speech. Uh, here's the moment that happened. You know, Germany tried it. They were up for about a year. Remember I sent to Angela? Remember Angela? Do you remember Angela? Nobody's remembering her now. Angela Merkel. You're just joining us, President Trump in Mar-a-Lago announcing his 2024 presidential run. (laughs) Angela Merkel. No no one's remembering her anymore. Tough. Real tough from, from Sean Hannity there. Why do you think Fox, of all places, did that? Like what? What? What do you think was going on there? I mean, they care about ratings too. I guess. <laughs> it's just, I mean, imagine. I, I, I think they thought that they were helping Trump more by cutting to 
two sycophants, Pete Hegseth and uh, and Mike Huckabee, to like praise the speech as opposed to actually playing people the speech, which sucked. Yeah, I mean, it's just there. There is someone sitting in a control room at Fox who, while Sean Hannity shows on right, the most pro-Trump personality on primetime is up there, and that person looked at what Trump was saying, thought about what the audience wants to hear and should hear, and decided that instead of hearing the former MAGA king drone on about Angela Merkel, they would rather talk to a guy who hosts Fox and Friends weekends. (laughs) Like, that was the choice they made. And, you know, I don't even think it's strategic. I think it, like, maybe if, like, Lachlan Murdoch or the woman whose name escapes me who runs Fox now were like making like we're in the room pulling the, you know, yeah. the levers. But this is, this is the, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night on Fox. It's just some random person who's making a judgment on te- quality of television. And they think Trump is bad television. And that's just, and they just think that's notable. I don't think it's, I don't really believe it says anything about, you know, are the Murdoch's walking away from Trump because all the, pr- it was very praiseworthy from all the commentary on it. And the guests they yes. booked on that show were booked to say nice things about Trump. There wasn't like they were getting one of the MAGA types like Candace Owens or someone else who has expressed reticence about Trump 24. It was right. just sycophants, but it's just, it says just a lot about the quality of the speech and the entertainment value and the news value of him. What do you think about the reaction from Republican politicians, Republican pundits, and Trump's potential rivals? Silence? Yeah. It's a lot of, uh, not a lot of conversation. Not yeah. a lot of, uh, not a lot of takes from the Republican side. Yeah, not not people saying positive things, not people saying negative things. There's been a little strain of, like, the, of the pro-Trump world, like the Lindsey Grahams are like, if he can just stick to the script like that, then he can do well. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm not sure the, what that means. <laughs> the My favorite reaction was from um, the conservative National Review, which just had a big picture of Trump on the cover and said no. <laughs> and the um, opening line of their editorial about the speech was, and, and Trump's 24 candidacy, quote, to paraphrase Voltaire after he attended an orgy, once was an experiment, Twice would be perverse. <laughs> just so, first of all, so National Review, like just. <laughs> so that I mean, was that. How long do you think they've been sitting? The Voltaire orgy thing—it's been in their draft folders. They've been like long looking time. for that long for time. like a decade. I think that I think the the dynamic here is most Republican politicians and rivals don't want him in charge of the party, but they're afraid of him in the base of voters. And so they're not sure what to say yet. So they're all just going to be weak cowards like they usually are. And we're, we're running into the, one of the exact same dynamics that actually led to January 6th, which is this pending Republican runoff is forcing a lot of people to keep their powder dry because they're afraid that if, the, if they attack Trump, they will diminish turnout among his voters and therefore lose a Senate seat. That is the root of the quote from a Republican leadership person about the, what's the harm in humoring Trump when he was spreading lies about yeah. the election around this time in 2020, and they're doing a similar thing. There will be some people who may think they're going to come out on December, you know, in early December after that election decided and say they're for DeSantis or something else, but you can't give Trump space. He gathers strength in these periods. So you have to, you have it, you can't humor him. You have to come out and say it, and they are they are going to make all the same mistakes all over again, and and he will end up probably likely leading the party again, or at least for the foreseeable future, for that reason. I do think it's like the you mentioned Candace Owens, people like her, Laura Ingram. There's more MAGA pundits that have a lot of influence that are starting to break away from him than there have been before. Yes, and I also think it's notable that there's a place for these people to land. And it's with Ron DeSantis and you're seeing, you know, like, I I don't know what the primary will look like. You know, you've got like Mike Pence out there, by the way, that Mike Pence town hall last night. (laughs) It was very funny from beginning to end, which may seem uh, may seem counterintuitive. But here's one really, really funny clip of him trying to answer a question uh, from uh, one of the audience members. And this freedom based on Roe also continue. Barbara, thank you. I, I represented Madison County in Congress for many years. So it's, Andrea. It's nice to see you. 
But uh, yeah, you get like Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Christy Nome. But like, I think if the field is split, then Trump gets the nomination because he only has to hit, you know, 30, 40 percent in some of these states and it's winner take all in the Republican primary. But if for some reason they all decide not to run or the, everyone consolidates quickly around just DeSantis and Trump, I think that is a different situation. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this for a long time last week. We don't really know how it'll play out, but Trump is definitely weaker than he has ever been. The question is whether Republicans will have the courage and the strategic sense to exploit that weakness, or they will do what they did in 16. They did multiple times during the presidency, and certainly after January 6th, which is just stay silent, hope Trump's falls under his own weight. And that is not going to happen. If not going to happen. You know, if you want to be the man, you got to beat the man. And none of them are trying to do it. And it's DeSantis is, it's still early. So we don't know. We don't even know if he's running. We don't even know if he has the capacity to relate to human beings. Like that's, <laughs> we do not know. And really seems to know that. But it's notable that he has stayed silent this whole time, that Trump has attacked him. He has stayed silent. And if you were, if, you know, folks who, dare to remember that long ago, the strategy of all of those candidates, Christie, Rubio, Jeb Bush, was to attack each other, not Trump, to try to be the Trump alternative. And by the time there, we, there never got to be a Trump alternative. The Trump alternative ended up being Ted Cruz, which is just amusing in so many ways, because if you don't attack him, he's going to gain strength. And so you know what happens in the next several months here, I think, will determine what how he's going to look if a primary takes place. And we don't really know that it will. I mean, when we had Maggie Haberman on, she raised real questions about whether, you know, based on her reporting, whether DeSantis would actually run against Trump. Now, Trump is a much weaker figure now than when we spoke to Maggie a month ago, but we'll have to see. So I agree with all that. And I've been saying that, like, look, if DeSantis, if Trump goes after DeSantis and DeSantis doesn't hit back, he's he's screwed. I Just to play devil's advocate, I was trying to think of like from DeSantis's point of view, why he might be operating like he's operating. Like, are there any sort of smart reasons? I think he probably looks at the Republican electorate and thinks, OK, most of these people still have very warm feelings toward Donald Trump. <laughs> um, obviously, there's some like MAGA fanatics, but even the people in the party who might be open to a DeSantis candidacy over Trump, still probably like Donald Trump. So if you start getting into pissing match with Donald Trump right now, then and, and people still don't know Ron DeSantis or enough people all over the country don't know Ron DeSantis, you know, then maybe his approval goes down and he, you know, it, his candidacy is over before it begins. Since Democrats are much better at beating Donald Trump than Republicans, uh, what advice would you give Ron DeSantis right now? Well, I, so I tend to agree that, you know, getting into a truth off on Truth Social with Donald Trump seems like a bad idea. Like, that's not how to engage with him. Like, don't come down to his level. But also- Don't do do the Marco Rubio dick joke thing. Yeah. Do basically take Rubio's strategy, Jeb Bush's strategy, do the opposite of those things. Do not be those people. (laughs) You're all Florida politicians. Meet with them, talk to them, take notes on their plans, and then do the exact opposite. If he wants to be the alternative, he has to take it. He has momentum right now. Don't forget about getting into a fight with Trump. Like, what could he be doing right now to raise his profile, to become a vessel for the anti-Trump sentiment in the grassroots of the party? Put aside the establishment. Like, what you, the mistake to make is to be the, like, all the fun, the hedge fund guys are coming out for you. Ken Griffin, Steve Schwartzman. That is actually going to, that will help pay, help fund your campaign, but it's going to be to Trump's advantage. Just like all of the establishment going to Jeb Bush helped Trump in 16. But be like, be out there. He's been incredibly quiet. Like, he got his good run of press and it's just sort of like doing Florida things. Find a way to, is there a big speech to give to lay out the future of the Republican Party that makes the case that it's forward-looking? It can be an implicit criticism of Trump. But don't just hold yourself up in a room with like your four advisors and try to have a bunch of meetings. You, If you want to give yourself – even if you have not yet decided to run, and I imagine he probably hasn't decided to run yet, and he has some process to go through, you, if you want to make sure you have that opportunity at the end of your process, you have to be very visible now. Yeah. I imagine that uh... – he would take a look at sort of the primary that uh, 
we ran against Hillary Clinton back in 07. <laughs> because, look, and there's there's a couple of big differences. I think Ron DeSantis has a lot more material to work with, <laughs> with Trump than we did. That's one difference, but, yes. <laughs> but he's also running against someone who's like, even more beloved by the base, I think, than Hillary Clinton was, right? Um, Because there's, like I said, Trump fanatics. Look, I think he's now got these, you know, incredible majorities in the Florida legislature. And I think that, you know, the session doesn't end till the spring. So he'll try to probably pass a bunch of shit between now and the spring. I imagine he will try to pick a lot of fights with the Biden administration because he is a governor of a big state and he'll try to do more stunts like the migrant stunt, right? He's going to try to get more. I think if you're him, you want to get more attention being like, I'm the one who can take the fight to the Democrats and to Joe Biden, um, not this other guy who's yesterday and I'm the future. And by the way, he's a loser and I'm a winner. And he might not say that explicitly, but those are sort of the larger themes that you want to get across, even if it's implicitly probably over the next several months. And I would imagine in this context that electability is going to be a huge point of conversation yep. in this election. And that that has been Trump's superpower among Republicans is that he beat Hillary Clinton. Right. And then he could make a kind of fake argument about keeping the Senate in 2018 and then almost winning in 2020. That has been punctured. And there you would, if you were DeSantis, you would position yourself as the MAGA guy who can win, the guy who is yep. cons- the the conservative who can win, not an establishment sort of a grassroots conservative who can win. And you're gonna, but you have to make that case for yourself. We, yeah. you know, we gave Joe Biden and a lot of pundits did some crap for being so explicit in his electability messaging in the 2020 Democratic primary, but he was right to do so. That's what people it cared worked. about. And yeah. he he there was obviously a lot of evidence to suggest that he was quite electable, all the head-to-head polls with Trump, but he also made the case for himself, and that's what people wanted, and DeSantis would have to do the same thing. Yeah. So speaking of Biden, uh, the Biden political team released two videos in response to Trump's announcement. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip from one. Nobody has ever done what we've done in the last four years. Their entire economic plan, tax cuts for the rich and corporations. And record-breaking unemployment. The worst jobs report on record. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no? There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. And if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. And then the other one, not as good for audio, but it's just uh, Trump talking about infrastructure a, a million different times. And then it's a split screen. And the other side of the screen is Biden just quietly signing the infrastructure law. <laughs> um, what do you think about uh, the Biden folks doing this smart move? Yeah, this I don't think this says a lot about what strategy they would employ in the 2024 campaign. The Biden folks are in a bit of a challenging purgatory because – their most likely opponent, one who at least up until last week had a very large megaphone and ability to attract attention for himself, is out there campaigning against them. Biden has not made a decision about running. He has a process that's going to take himself into next year talking to his family. And so you're in this place where someone's running a campaign against you, but you have not stood up a campaign on your own to fight back. And so this is, I think, as much signaling that they are going to push back. It's both messages, right? It's I'm a success. He was a failure. I'm better at infrastructure than him, which he obviously sends people to the ramparts are so excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) And just reminding people that he's just like all the candidates they just voted against on Tuesday with the big lie and the January 6th stuff and the abortion stuff. But it's just sort of telling the world, not really the larger electorate, but just pundits and political activists that we're going to punch back in the interim before a decision is made on a reelect. Yeah. I thought the issues they chose in that first video that we heard is smart and telling for everything we've just been talking about with the midterms. It's like he's extreme on economic policy, extreme on abortion, extreme on democracy. They got they hit it all. So our old boss David Pluff reacted to the speech by tweeting, assume he could win again despite it all and act accordingly. Do you agree? And what does act accordingly look like? I absolutely agree. We Every election, barring some dramatic change in the political coalitions within this country, every presidential election in the years to come, every midterm election in the years to come, is going to be incredibly closely divided in the small handful of states that decide the Senate, the House, and the White House. 
And it would in the middle of a pandemic in which Donald Trump's absolute obvious well-broadcast incompetence killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, he only lost by 40,000 votes. Yeah. If he is the Republican nominee, we are right around a coin flip away from him being president again. That's that is the, you know, you had this conversation on offline that I recommend everyone with Lynn Vavrek, the political science professor, who has a who has done a lot of studies of presidential elections and makes the point that we live on the knife's edge all the time because we're so closely divided. And so Whoever is on that ticket in those two seats, one of them could be president and it could absolutely be Trump. And we can laugh at him. We can make fun of him. We deserve that, frankly, as a country and as a party. But be aware, do not take him for seriously. Do not take a single thing for granted, whether it's Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or any other Republican. They can absolutely be president, whether Joe Biden is a nominee or someone else. That is the world in which we live. Yeah, and especially if it's or if it's a rematch, if it's Joe Biden and Donald Trump, then, you know, Joe Biden won by like 40,000 votes across three states. And that is a, that is tiny. <laughs> Anything could happen with those 40,000 voters. I mean, that voter. is a weather system in the Midwest from losing. Like that yeah, is just how that close is exactly it is. right. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. Uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, let's talk about the midterms, uh, which more than a week later are almost done. Uh, the Republicans are officially projected to win the House. Uh, with the majority, you'll probably be able to count on one hand. Uh, I think it's going to be somewhere between 220 and 222 seats. If it's 222, that would actually be the mirror image of what the Democrats have now as a majority. Uh, this means that Kevin McCarthy will need almost every Republican to be speaker. The current speaker, Nancy Pelosi, announced today, right before we were recording this, that she will be stepping down from leadership. She will remain in Congress, uh, at least for the next two years, but she will... Um, She's ready to pass the torch to the next generation of leaders uh, in the Congress. Over in the Senate, Mitch McConnell was reelected as minority leader after challenger uh, Rick Scott only won 10 votes. Only 10 votes for Rick <laughs> Scott. And the last big governor's race was called in Arizona, where Katie Hobbs beat well-filtered election denier Carrie Lake by less than a point, uh, about 34,000 votes. Uh, Hobbs's victory means that just about every Trump-endorsed election denier who ran for governor, secretary of state, or attorney general lost. Uh, let's start there. Carrie Lake was heralded as the future of the Republican Party. What happened? How did Katie Hobbs win? It is a yet another piece of evidence that this election was a rejection of Republican extremism, even charismatic, well, you know, well media trained. Extremists still lose. Yeah. Yeah. 
She got cl- she did get closer, right? Like it's interesting. I was looking at the numbers on the on the um, uh, governor's race and the Senate race, and Mark Kelly got the most votes of any of the four candidates, one point three million. Then Katie Hobbs, she was at one point two eight million. Then Lake at one point two six four, and then Masters at one point one nine. Blake Masters, just shitty candidate. <laughs> it's it's weird that the guy giving off serial killer vibes uh, was a drag on the ticket that year. So Hobbs got a lot of criticism, including from us, for not debating Kerry Lake. Not me. I wasn't on that episode. Uh, I supported. <laughs> <Dick>. <laughs> Why do you think that worked, or at least didn't hurt enough to cost her the election? It is funny that the two prevailing bits of political conventional wisdom was that Katie Hobbs should have debated and John Fetterman should not have debated and they both won. I know. I think that while there is some evidence in one particular poll that John Fetterman's decision to debate may actually have helped him, or at least that his numbers went up in the wake of that debate, in part because I think maybe some sympathy for his performance – Dr. Oz's statement about wanting local political officials involved in abortion decisions probably wasn't great for him. But what it probably says is that for the the people who pay attention to debates, whether someone debates or doesn't debate, how they do in that debate is a conversation that happens among people who've already decided to vote and decided who yeah. they're going to vote for. And so it probably had zero impact either way. And this is a thing we should probably rem- – presidential debates I think are different. They have a much larger audience. The conversation is bigger. They're broadcast on national television on the networks, but in these state races, they are fun to talk about. They may be fun to watch for some people, but it's just worth reminding ourselves that it is a small, the vast majority of the electorate, particularly the ones who are going to decide the election through their decision to vote or not vote or for whom to vote. It It's a conversation they're not engaged in and does not matter. So we just remind ourselves of this small tactical things don't that's, matter as much as the big stuff. That's my takeaway too, is look, I'm a big persuasion guy and I want to live in a world where two candidates uh two candidates debate and then they uh and then there's undecided voters watching and they change their minds and i just we're not in that world yeah. <laughs> where i think about the calcified politics that, that that's the world we're in and um and also that the people who are undecided don't consume that much news and not only are they not watching debates but they're probably not consuming that much coverage of the debates so i think that's very possible that if john fetterman had never debated and decided not to debate, and Katie Hobbs did choose to debate Carrie Lake, we could have ended up with the same exact results. <laughs> I, I can't tell you what I'm so excited for. What? Some point, like four to six months from now, we're going to be sitting down to do the Thursday podcast, and you are going to learn in that moment that Crooked is now selling big Persuasion Guy t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and no one will buy that. <laughs> <laughs> will be our worst selling item. <laughs> All right, so almost every election denier running for statewide office lost. And with the very notable exception of Carrie Lake, who uh, just this morning refused to concede and made up some nonsense about voting irregularities, which is not true, um, almost every other election denier has also conceded. Do you think that's a sign that, that the conspiracy is losing its power? And what do you think happens with Carrie Lake? <laughs> It means that democracy is completely safe. We can disengage. Everything is fine. That's all the time we have for today. We will see you in a couple months. (laughs) This is now a reality TV podcast. Um, I don't know what happens with Carrie Lake. I don't think it really matters. There are legal processes with which people can contest election results. Um, I don't know what she is going to do. She will follow those. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it says two things. One is the best way to avoid election deniers, potential insurrection, all the things, is to just win by a lot, right? Like like Doug Mastrano is an actual insurrectionist. He was unable to challenge elections because he got his ass kicked. So if you want to avoid it, kick people's asses. In some states, that's going to be impossible because the margins are narrow, but when you do, that solves that problem. And and if all of these Trump big lie candidates conceded like normal Republicans, it probably speaks very directly to the specific sociopathic danger that Donald Trump is. Only he can take this all the way to the end in a way that ends so dangerous. To believe it so much or trick yourself into believing it so much that you send an armed, violent crowd to the Capitol to murder your vice president in an attempt to keep power, like that is something very specific to him. And 
that and I think that is like when when you ask you know the question about David Plus tweet like act accordingly because that threat still exists even if these as long as Donald Trump's in politics that threat exists. Yeah, I think the results of this election also made them realize that it's not very popular to be an election denying extremist. Yeah, <laughs> it's also in like what you know this is impossible to sort of sort through and pull apart, but like most of these election deniers were extremists not just because they believed in the big lie, not just because they wanted to criminalize all abortions with no exceptions, most of them. But there are plenty of other crazy things they said, too. <laughs> like, it's just hard to, you know, Doug Mastriano is like posing in a Confederate uniform <laughs> in the picture. <laughs> like there's, the, you know, Blake Masters is saying that the Unabomber had some, uh, was an un- underappreciated thinker. Like <laughs> These people had plenty of crazy shit yeah. to pick from here. And it's pretty clear that... Uh, even folks who were very, very upset with the direction of the country were not ready to uh, take a chance on people like that. You know, I have seen some evidence, and even in some in some of your wilderness focus groups too, that the big sometimes there are issues that become identifiers of something. Yeah. That you know, we've seen this in immigration debates before, where the Republican position on immigration for some portion of Latino voters was a sign that these that this is not my party, even if I agree with them on this handful of other issues. And for for some set of voters the big lie mattered. It was a sign that you were not tethered to reality or to seriousness or, or you were too Trumpy in a way yeah. that I think mattered. Ab- abortion, same way, right? These extremist position on abortions, those things may matter than all of the other sort of ancillary crazy stuff. And Democrats are going to have to get ready to run against a Republican party, either at the top to ticket or in some of these Senate candidates who avoid those obviously losing positions. They may believe them, but they won't talk about them. And we're going to have to figure out how to, we always talk about like how you create the issue environment you need. Republicans help create it for us because Donald Trump and his candidates couldn't shut up about the things voters hated about them. That will be different next time, unless Donald Trump's at the top of the ticket. And by the way, they will be aided by a media that will love a storyline that Republicans have decided to, quote unquote, moderate themselves. I am already throwing up in my mouth thinking about the Ron DeSantis coverage as the both sides press yearns. Well, he you know, yearns for a normal Republican who bullies gay and trans kids from the podium. You know it's coming. You know oh, it's coming. It's, it's coming. just like being two degrees less clumsy or less obvious an asshole than Donald Trump does not make you George H.W. Bush people. (laughs) We talked a lot about the House and Senate dynamics on Tuesday's pod, but now that we know who the leaders are and what the margins will be, what do you think we can expect from uh, Congress over the next few years? Well, I guess we don't know yet that McCarthy will be the speaker. He still has to go get those 218 votes. He fell 31 votes short in the nomination uh, process, which is large... I would expect he ends up the speaker. There is no obvious other person out there. Um, and that 31 that thirty one votes is, a, is leverage for whatever insanity Republicans want. And we've already seen it. It was mentioned, like buried in the New York Times, that one of the things that McCarthy has agreed would be on the Republican agenda is investigating the treatment of the quote-unquote political prisoners from January 6th. And then – same this just this morning the house gop twitter account tweeted out hunter's laptop is real all capital letters so like they they're just they're lessons not learned yes just as a point they are one of their priorities is not to lower inflation or all that it's to advocate on behalf of the people who tried to murder mike pence which is funny because you know who's a member of the republican caucus greg pence his brother Oh, yeah, I always forget that. I'm glad. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, they, I mean, the New York Times put it well, and they said, it just in one of the stories, that their their agenda is investigative, not legislative, which is exactly right. All they want to do is investigations. And that's how Kevin McCarthy is going to keep his caucus together, by promising those things. So it's going to be an interesting two years. What do you think about this? Did you see that um, ugh, we might not get the debt ceiling down in the lame duck? Because 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 fucking Joe Manchin again is like, oh, we need a bipartisan. Oh. The election was nine days ago and we're right back into the Manchin cul-de-sac. <laughs> I mean, it, I just, uh, it's insane. It is insane. It is in, this is Joe Manchin's fault, I believe, yeah. if, if this ends up to be the case. 
But yeah. the reporting suggests sure. the reporting suggests that this is not just posturing that people are very concerned that this will not happen, and we are handing a detonator to a group of dangerous yahoos. And yeah, there like are, a caucus, a caucus that's basically now run by not really Kevin McCarthy, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she gets to decide what happens. She gets to decide whether the global economy blows up or not. Cool. Kevin McCarthy is someone who voted to overturn the election hours after a mob of Trump supporters tried to kill him. This is not, you know, John Boehner was a miserable speaker. He was a, he was just a weak individual, but he did not, he thought his members were crazy and tried to, and failed to moderate their craziness. That is not Kevin McCarthy. No. He makes John Boehner look like Nancy Pelosi. He's so weak and dumb. And so this is very, very dangerous. And there were forces Mitch McConnell, for instance, was yep. a stronger force within the party and able to help work with Senator Reid and others to eventually bring these debt ceiling fights to a close without crashing the global economy. Mitch McConnell has a f- fraction of the legitimacy within the party he had before. Yeah. And so this is it's very dangerous. And with Trump running for president on top of this and pushing pressure, I mean, it is insane to not fix it. And Republicans should want to fix it, frankly. Yes. I, I don't get whatever. Yeah. Anyway, to end on a high note, we should say that, you know, with Pelosi stepping down, I think she will go down in history as like maybe the best, most productive, shrewdest yes. speaker of the house that the country's ever seen. Hands down. It's an, I don't even think it's a close call. She has been a tremendous speaker a tremendous minority leader in the opposition. She has yeah. stood up against, she has worked with presidents, stood up against presidents. Not, I don't even think it's a close call. It's she, the sheer amount of legislation she's gotten through. She's been able we, to keep her caucus together. It's 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 incredibly is, impressive. And the thing that's so funny is everyone's like, this Republican caucus is going to be a disaster when it's this close. And Nancy Pelosi passed huge pieces of legislation with yeah. this exact margin. And no That's one true. thinks Kevin McCarthy could do it. They, they're going to be shocked if he can get these fucking Yahoo's degree on a lunch menu. And she's passing <laughs> climate change legislation and major stimulus bills and all of that. Like, I mean, yeah. she's she's amazing. She will Love go down in history. Too. President Obama would always say he couldn't have done any of that stuff without her and Senator Reid. And, and he really, he really believes that. Yeah. Really believes that. Uh, okay. When we come back, Dan talks to John Ralston of the Nevada Independent about uh, what happened in that state in the midterms. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Joining us now is the person who reminds us every two years that the Silver State matters, John Rolson, the Nevada Independent. John, welcome back to Pod Save America. Hi, Dan. Right around the time early votes start coming in in your state, I set up Twitter alerts for you so I can track what's happening. So I know that you are relatively sleep deprived these days. I've been pretty busy. Uh, so we're grateful that you would take the time here uh, when you should be heading towards your vacation, I would hope, to talk to us about this. Actually, you know, it's funny how many Twitter friends I make every other year and suddenly (laughs) they disappear. It's like a one election stand, Dan. It's so hard. 
Well, I stick with you. I just I, I turn off the alerts after <laughs> the votes it. are counted, but I but it. I still read your tweets to be very clear. All right, I, I want to start with a prediction that you made before the election. I think if you had polled Democratic operatives around the country, the sentiment was is that Catherine Cortez Masto was by far the most vulnerable of the Democratic incumbents. If you'd asked us to pick one race that we were likely to lose, it would probably be this one, given some of the recent strength that Republicans have shown in the state, the demographics, et cetera. I think you shocked a lot of people and, frankly, gave a lot of Democrats hope when, before the election, you predicted that Masto would actually win and that the Republican Joe Lombardo would win the governor's race. What led you to make that prediction, and, and did you did the did your reasoning bear out when those results came to fruition? Uh, well, uh, and now I have to prove that there was reasoning behind this. As, as you, you can, to, the thing is, you can you can exp- even a broken clock can explain why it's right. So you won with right. it. <laughs> it was not a magic eight ball. I promise. Uh, <laughs> so, um, listen, I, I you know I've been doing these predictions for a long time, as you know, before the election, and this was the hardest year uh, that I've had to, to, to do it. And I took a lot of heat, by the way, as you probably saw if you were on Twitter <laughs> from especially Republicans who were not just confident, but almost cocky that they were yeah. going to win uh, that race. So how did I come to the conclusion to make the kind of split verdict? Uh, Lombardo had been running ahead uh, of, of Adam Laxalt, uh, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto's opponent, by one or two points in every poll that I that, that I had seen. Uh, but as you know, Dan, I kind of ignore polls once I start looking at the early voting data, uh, which is uh, uh, somewhat predictive in Nevada because so many people vote early, even after the change in the way we do elections with all the mail ballots. And it looked like the Republicans were doing pretty well. But uh, there were several things that went into the calculation. First of all, uh, there there was no question in my mind that people really, really hated Steve Sisolak for what he had done and, and d- during COVID and the COVID hangover, as I call it. And I, so I, I thought he was in big trouble. Whether that's fair or not, that I'm just talking about how I made uh, the decision. And so I thought there were people who were just going to never vote for Steve Sisolak, including some Democrats and independents or big cohort in this state. And so I, and I came to the conclusion that Joe Lombardo's team had run a good enough campaign that they were going to squeak it out. Uh, so Catherine Cortez Masto was running against someone who I think the national media really missed something in, in focusing so much on, on Blake Masters and Herschel Walker and mm. Dr. Oz as being these terrible Trump endorsed candidates that, that, that had made the, uh, uh, what should have been wins very, very iffy. Adam Laxalt's a terrible candidate. The only difference is, is that his campaign was able to cocoon him enough so he didn't say as many dumb things as some of these others. And he had worn out his welcome here, Dan. He had he, he had upset a lot of Republicans by blowing what they thought was an almost sure thing governor's race, therefore giving, in 2018, giving Democrats con- complete control of Carson City and the ability to, to redistrict and reapportion uh, uh, however they wanted. And so there, there was some buyer's remorse going on in the Republican Party that a lot of people did not pick up on. And especially in Washoe County, uh, which is where Reno is, and which, he, by the way, he ended up losing by five or six points. Uh, And so Catherine Cortez Masto had run almost a flawless campaign, Uh, very disciplined. Um, uh, She worked really hard the last month and her media in defining Laxalt as this kind of child of privilege carpetbagger who moved here to run for office and who was caught on tape saying Roe versus Wade was always a joke. And they played that over and over again. I thought Combine all those factors with the fact that despite the premature uh, uh, burial of the so-called Reed machine here, it was still alive and well and would just barely push her over the top. So that's how I came to that conclusion. There's been a lot of conversation over the years, but even in the wake of the election about the quote unquote Harry Reed machine. Could you sort of explain what that is, how it works and how it has persisted both long after uh, Senator Reid's passing, but also uh, with some changes in the leadership of the Democratic Party within the state. Yeah, so uh, the Reid machine developed uh, a, 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 was developed by Harry Reid after some. Uh, it actually start, goes way back to 1998 when he almost lost his seat to John Ensign by 428 votes. I remember all these numbers because I have a crazy memory, and I happen to be writing a book about 
uh, Harry Reid. And I know even oh, that's cool. than I used to. Yeah. So, uh, and he knew he had to make some changes. And they didn't all come to fruition until 2004 when he brought in a, a, an operator from Missouri by the name of Rebecca Lamb, who he essentially uh, uh, became tasked with overseeing the Reid machine. And what she did was bring in all these very talented, hardworking, both data-driven uh, uh, young operatives and just hard workers who knew that there was a formula uh, and the formula isn't that complex executing it is is to some extent. And that is register as many voters as you can and then turn them out. Bank votes during early voting, early voting lasts for two weeks here. Uh, Harry Reid wasn't the guy who was going door to door. He wasn't the guy crunching the numbers, right? He was making sure the thing got funded and no one could raise money like Harry Reid. So after he left office in, in 2016, the machine was still there. Uh, it, it, it had a harder time raising money. And then after uh, the, the, the last cycle, it had even a more difficult time because, as you alluded to, these Democratic socialists took over the Democratic Party, which I had often referred to. And I think Rebecca Lamb cringed at this description, a legalized money laundering operation <laughs> where they would raise all this money, you know, and then and then use it to register and turn out voters. But they got around that. They set up a parallel organization and they still got the funding for this machine. And they they were able to change uh, uh, some election laws that they thought would benefit them because they have an organization and infrastructure. The Republicans have tried some copycat stuff, Dan, but they have never been as effective or hired as good people as Rebecca Lamb and her team. And it is remarkable, by the way. People think that Catherine Cortez Masto's victory is remarkable, and it is in many ways. But the fact that Steve Sisolak, after everything he had endured and all of his negatives, is going to end up losing by about 12, 14,000 votes out of more than a million cast. That's solely due to that machine, Dan, and what they were able to do. It's why they won three House seats that the Republicans thought they were going to take. It's why in a midterm with Joe Biden's numbers here under 40 percent in some Democratic polls, they picked up seats in the legislature. Uh, you know, so it, it really is a remarkable operation. And and, and Rebecca Lamb, who is, uh, I thought was going to do a mic drop several cycles ago. <laughs> yes. uh, she, she won't do that until uh, she finishes some stuff. She wants Nevada to be first in the nation in the primaries and wants to win uh, for president in 2024. But she deserves a lot of credit. She, she, she likes to operate in the background. She'll probably hate that I'm even saying her name on this podcast. Uh, but, but she is responsible for these victories. Nevada is a state that I think a lot you may you probably know this too well to agree with it, but a lot of Democrats thought was trending pretty strongly blue after 2012. Obama won it easily in 08, I think six and a, over six points in 2012, snapped back in 2016, and then has been incredibly close since then, incredibly close in 20. And it, it has been sort of on the forefront of some of the demographic shifts that have happened within the party coalitions uh, since Trump. Is there anything you saw on Tuesday or in the the, the election month that is what you guys do there um, that gives you some indication of where this where your state is going in 2024 and beyond? It's hard. You know, it, 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 it's hard to I mean, you talk about the eternity in politics. Twenty four right. hours is an eternity in yeah. politics now the way it works. Right. Uh, as opposed to two years. But. Listen, um, uh, there there is no question that um, uh, the, the, that if you just look at the numbers, Nevada has turned slightly rightward since uh, the time that Obama did so well uh, in the state. He won by double digits the first time, and then, as you say, won, won by six or seven points uh, the, the 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 second. But uh, I'm not sure that that is something the Republicans can bank on. And Washoe County, which is really the deciding county and really the bellwether county in Nevada, the way it works real quickly is that Clark County, where Las Vegas is, has 70 percent of the votes, very heavily Democratic, although less so than it used to be. Uh, the 15 rural counties are deep red counties. And then they try to offset whatever the margin is in Clark. And then Washoe decides things. I think that people in Washoe County after 2020 uh, thought that Washoe and after what happened with COVID and 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 and, and people being really mad at the Democrats, uh, both Biden and Sislak, it was trending red. I had someone on Election Day when the initial results came out, someone very smart Republican operative in Washoe text me and say, I guess Washoe is going red again. And then everything changed as all the mm-hmm. votes came in. And 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 so uh, Washoe County is a purple county. And you could even say that it's trending slightly blue 
in, in, in some ways. And so, listen, as you know better than anybody, Dan, candidates matter, campaigns matter, and who the Democrats nominate uh, if Biden doesn't run, who eventually is the Republican nominee is going to determine a lot uh, that happens in Nevada. But I think you still have to say that Nevada leans slightly blue uh, in the presidential race based on what's happened since Obama won in 2008. Joe Lombardo is one of the small handful of candidates endorsed by former President Trump that won. He certainly got less attention than Kerry Lake or Doug Mastriano. Tell us a little bit about Joe Lombardo. Should Democrats who were very worried about these MAGA candidates who have at some point in time expressed some support for the big lie or questions about Biden's legitimacy, what, what should we think about Joe Lombardo and what, what a potential threat he poses to election integrity and democracy in your state? It's a great question. Uh, and, and I think it's unfair to Joe Lombardo to compare him to Kerry Lake or Mastriano. Who are both yeah, that's the, Tr- Trump's, he had, he's, I only put him in that basket as, a, as someone Trump endorsed, but yes, he is, he is different. And also in the sense that he won. So that probably said something. And, and, and he is not an election denier in that sense. And the story of, of Trump endorsing him is kind of interesting in the sense it's a different kind of story than almost any other one. Uh, Joe Lombardo was in a multi-way primary for governor uh, against the likes of a former Senator Dean Heller, uh, the mayor of North Las Vegas, John Lee, who switched parties to run, and a guy named Joey Gilbert, who is a mega maniac, uh, hydroxychloroquine believer, <laughs> uh, conspiracy theory believer. But he started to do well and started to get a kind of a cult following. And a cult following sometimes, as you know, Dan, is enough to win in a multi-way primary. And so that's when they reached out and got the Trump endorsement just to kind of seal the deal in the primary. Uh, but uh, Lombardo, I won't say he kept him at arm's length, but he came right after the primary. Uh, Trump did to, to, to do an event for Lombardo and Adam Laxall. And it was actually almost comical. And you'll appreciate this. There's the sheriff of Clark County running uh, for governor and Trump standing next to him. And the first thing he says and what got the headlines is Nevada is a cesspool of crime. thanks thanks, mr president so uh he is he he tried to not emphasize at all the trump endorsement but one and this is my opinion strategic error that sisolak and his team made dan is that during a debate and i I moderated the debate i asked lombardo if he thought trump was a great president he said i wouldn't use that adjective i'd say he was a sound president (laughs) Uh, by that afternoon, they put out a press release correcting that, saying he was a great president. And then Trump came a couple of days later. And when Lombardo was up on stage, he was calling him the greatest president of all yeah. time. So it was a kind of pathetic bending of the knee. But like almost all Republican candidates think they have to do this. And the New York Times reported uh, uh, last week or this week, I'm sorry, Dan, all the time is running together. I understand um, it. Yeah. Me, um, th- th- exactly what I thought had happened is Trump heard about the, what he said in the debate, went crazy, was going to withdraw the endorsement until they put out the corrective uh, statements on that. But, uh, you know, he's not an election denier. He did the nod to election in- integrity, which are the code words that the base needs needs to hear. But he has not uh, talked about overhauling election laws. Sure, he's for voter ID like every Republican is for, but that's going nowhere in a democratically controlled legislature. A real election denier secretary of state who could have done some damage lost. Uh, and so I don't think that Lombardo's agenda at all is 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 to change the election laws to make them a, a, a threat for integrity. They're they're going to try to ratchet back certain things. But here's the thing, Dan, is that what the Reed machine has proven is that uh, I sound like their agent here, but it's the truth. <laughs> um, is that it doesn't matter what the system is, they're going to outorganize, they're going to outwork and outfund whatever the system is. And so uh, I, I do not consider Joe Lombardo a threat. The thing about Joe Lombardo, sheriff of Clark County, he's a cop his entire career. He doesn't know anything about state government or these state issues. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he could he, he he was able to fake it through superficial answers during the campaign. He's got a lot to learn. And who he puts around him, I think, are going to be the signal on that issue you asked about and, and other issues uh, in state government. Last question for you. You mentioned uh, Rebecca Lamb's desire uh, to make Nevada the fir- first in the nation in the primary process. We don't know whether we're going to have a Democratic primary this upcoming election cycle. There may not be, but the DNC is going to, is looking at the at how to rearrange the calendar. There have been a lot of concerns since 2020 about the 
sort of accessibility of caucuses as a method. Is Nevada considering uh, switching to a primary in order to be in the front of the calendar? Is there anything you, you can you can tell me about how the party there is thinking about it? Yeah, they they changed it. They changed mm-hmm. the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's going to be a primary because just for this reason, Dan, because they knew that the, you know, the Iowa caucus was a nightmare. Uh, caucuses are undemocratic. Even even Harry Reid uh, may rest in peace before he came out and said, all right, I've decided caucuses are anti-democratic. We should change. We should change it. But they were doing this all because they wanted to show the DNC, look, we're, we're up to doing this the right way. Please make us first. And by the way, uh, I, I think if Harry Reid were still alive, that, that we would have a much better chance of being first in the nation because he could whisper in the president's ear, do this for me, Joe, because the president will have some say in this. I don't think first in the nation is going to be Delaware, but I do think <laughs> that, that that he is going to have some say uh, if there is a, a primary system and who goes first. And I think Nevada has a great case to make. By the way, I'm obviously a partisan on on, on, on Nevada. You know, I, I think I think we matter and we should matter more. But, you know, we're much more of a demographically diverse uh, 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 state. And, and we are what the Democratic Party wants to show to the nation, despite the kind of quirkiness of Nevada and the caricaturing of Nevada that is done. Not that you would ever do that, Dan, but that, <laughs> that some people nationally have done. John Ralston, thank you so much. I hope you these final votes get counted and you get to take a long vacation. Uh, and thanks for all your hard work and keeping us updated on what was happening this election. Thanks for having me. Thanks to John Ralston for joining us today. Everyone have a good weekend. Dan and I have a Thanksgiving mailbag for you that's going to run next Tuesday. Other than that, everyone have a great Thanksgiving break, and we'll uh, we'll see you after the holidays. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.